Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science, and welcome to Causes and Things, a new podcast to introduce just a few of the ideas being explored at LSE. Saw you there at the logic lecture, and I knew I just had to get you. There ain't no possible I'm Nicole Gallivan, and with me is Danny O'Connor. In this edition, we'll introduce the man who's measuring the Olympic effect on Britain. Could staging the Games make us a happier nation? We'll also hear from a darker side of London, where research into drugs policing suggests that the reason for the high number of stop and searches in the capital are not completely straightforward. We'll look too at the questions of copyright and creativity raised by a legal case that took 40 years to come to court, and at how economics works in the virtual world. And, are you a maverick? There's a simple test which may suggest if you're one of the unusual few identified by research as being crucial to the success of a business. First, let the analysis of the games commence. We all know that staging the Olympics is an expensive business, but are there intangible benefits that are not yet fully understood? This summer, London will play host to the Olympic Games. An estimated 10,500 athletes from over 200 nations will come to the UK to compete in 26 sports, and around 4 billion people are expected to watch globally. But how about Londoners? What will their experience of the Olympics be? Could the Games, for example, affect how happy they feel? No, because I think travelling is going to be really chaotic. Well, it made no difference to me because I'll be abroad anyway for a month, so I won't be seeing it. Yes, I think it will improve the mood of Londoners because it's a a once-in-a-lifetime experience and I think everybody will get caught up in the excitement, particularly if we win medals. Professor Paul Dolan is a behavioural economist who is interested in how to measure people's sense of well-being. Policymakers are increasingly interested in promoting societal as well as economic well-being and Dolan's research is about developing techniques to evaluate if certain policies are making people happier. So, he's using the Olympics as a kind of natural experiment. The motivation for this is, uh, of course, we've got 2012 Games coming to London, and we know they're coming. So it's a nice event to be able to think about you know, what impact, if, if, if any, uh, hosting the Games would have on the well-being of Londoners. Um, actually, truthfully, it's a really good opportunity to gather some happiness data um, so um, we're, we're using it as an opportunity both to say something about the 2012 Games but to also answer some more interesting methodological questions about you know, how, what things influence people's answers and the order of the questions and all those kind of things. Um, and we're comparing happiness in London with that in Berlin and Paris. Um, Paris is the obvious counterfactual because had three IOC members voted differently they'd be hosting the Games in London. And Berlin is a nice, clean counterfactual, if you like, because they didn't bid at all. How do you find out how happy people are? Well, it turns out you have to ask them. So a group of people will be surveyed online over three years, with extra phone interviews during the Games to capture how happy they rate themselves as the Olympics progress. The group will be asked questions designed by Dolan and also adopted by the Office of National Statistics in their big surveys. Dolan explains the questions. One is a evaluation question how how is life going you know when you step back from yourself and you think about how satisfied you are with life overall that's one question 
Then there's more sort of experience measures, uh, which is happiness more on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. So we're asking about how happy people were yesterday, as well as how anxious they were. Um, and um, in fact, we've also asked you know, in a sample of the Londoners how worried they are as well. So we've got the positive and negative affect, as it's called, the positive and negative feelings about your own happiness as, it, as you experience it day-to-day. And then there's a third uh, category of question, which is more the eudaimonic, which means a sense of worthwhileness, a sense of purpose. And so we're asking people how worthwhile their activities are. So it's a sort of kind of capture this richness of the subjective experience. Dolan is also looking at what other benefits the games might bring. It could potentially increase social cohesion, a sense of community, a sense of pride. Um, You know, all these things that come with having a big party. I mean, which is really what the games are, really. I mean, they're a big party. Um, you know, and there are some intangible benefits that come from hosting big... Or there may be at least some intangible benefits that come from hosting big parties. Um, we know that big parties are probably, if you were just interested in the economic measures in the, or, or the standard economic measures of, you know, monetary flows, um, then they're probably not worth it. I mean, they cost an enormous amount of money to put on. The costs are changed every day. We're spending more and more every day. Um, and uh, the benefits are uh, questionable. I mean, the the economic benefits are very short-lived. The, you know, we might build the stadium, but that's only the time that they're being built. The tourism, a large part of that tourism is tourism that's been that 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 you you would have other tourists coming to London at that time for other things, so they get displaced. Uh, so some of the some of those more economic benefits, the standard economic benefits, are probably it's not worth it. So if, insofar as it is worth it, it'll be through these intangible um, feelings-based almost benefits. Does Professor Dolan think the Olympics will make him any happier? Well, I've got some tickets to some events, so I'm biased. Um, but I think it's like a big party. I mean, I kind of think, you know, we, we try so far, you know, individuals, it's a very tight austere environment at the moment and we're all having to think about how we spend our money but spending it on a party once in a while I don't think is any bad thing you know and uh, we might get a, a one big hangover from it um, but while it's on it's fun It was all a then cute but all I saw was if it's me then it's you well There ain't no possible world in which we don't. So, you want to be a pop star? The first step is forming a band. But what do you focus on next? Perhaps it's writing songs, getting your look right, or buying an amplifier. What's almost certain is that your first move won't be drawing up a legal agreement with the rest of the band. Be warned, though, this is a decision that might return to bite you. Dr Luke McDonough has studied the legal feuding that can erupt inside the music industry and what this tells us about the ways in which creative people handle copyright. His work begins with the story of how a famous pop melody sprang to life in a recording studio but arrived in disharmony almost 40 years later in court. piece of music is a very famous song called A Whiter Shade of Pale by um, a 1960s pop band called Procol Harum, probably best known for its distinctive organ introduction. (laughs) 
interesting story. Um, the main songwriter, Gary Brooker, the main composer, uh, didn't have that part um, in his original con uh, composition. So it was added later during the recording process, during rehearsals between the musicians who eventually formed the band. And the organist, Matthew Fisher, improvised the organ part over the chords that Gary Brooker had written for the song. We have an example of a very clear distinction between the composer of the frame of the song, which is the chords, and the musician who then created an instrumental part that is very famous and also part of the eventual recorded song. Well, the song was a huge hit. It was a number one hit in the 1960s in the United Kingdom. Um, it was successful all over the world, um, and it, its popularity continues today. Um, it's heard on countless advertisements in films and television programs. It still generates a huge amount of, of revenue, um, which is one of the reasons why, 40 years after the song was recorded, the court case eventually came up. With royalties from the song running into hundreds of thousands of pounds, the question of how much of that money, if any, should go to organist Matthew Fisher went before a judge in 2006. Would the law recognise Fisher as a joint author of White a Shade of Pale? What the law requires is that there has to be a, a joint undertaking by both parties to create a single work. So what the court had to decide was whether there was such an undertaking to create this work and that what Matthew Fisher had done in contributing the organ part was original enough in the copyright sense for it to be protected. And in the High Court, the judge was very clear that when you have such a recognisable contribution, um, I mean, the organ part of the song A Whiter Shade of Pale is probably the most famous thing about the song. In such a case, the court was satisfied that this was certainly original enough for the purposes of, of copyright. In the event, the case went all the way to the House of Lords. The decision was that Fisher would, in future, be entitled to a share of the song's royalties. Crucially, the courts drew a distinction between the song, the written composition, and the arrangement, the version actually recorded and featuring Matthew Fisher's distinctive organ. So the court was satisfied, and the Court of Appeal made this very clear, that Matthew Fisher was a joint author of the arrangement in the case. So both the, the composition and the arrangement are musical works under copyright, but they, they can be different works and they can be different sounding works. Procol Harum aren't the only band to have become embroiled in legal action. Copyright cases have also flared up over songs by Pink Floyd and Spandau Ballet, for example. Away from the world of pop, though, musicians can have a more relaxed view of copyright. Dr McDonough, a fellow in LSE's Department of Law, has researched how things work in the field of Irish traditional music. Even though musicians are somewhat aware of copyright, and they're not anti-copyright in any way, they are wary of it because there's a traditional share ethic amongst Irish traditional musicians. That's the way the music, the music has been created over time. That's the way the music has been passed down from one generation to the next. That's the way that all, all musicians learn music, is through sharing tunes and playing each other's different versions of tunes. The authors, the, the composers and the arrangers in the world of Irish traditional music 
are relatively relaxed about this because the number one thing that they want is for their music to be accepted as part of the tradition. So there's less emphasis on collecting license fees and royalties. And different models of copyright exist in other creative industries, among computer software programmers, for example. In any area where you have collaborative creativity, you're going to find that the ordinary rules of copyright don't work as well as, as they do when you have a single author doing his bit and creating a single work. Creative people find ways of taking a step back from copyright and allowing the freedom to, to create, to, to bloom. So, for example, in the world of Irish traditional music, musicians tend to take a step back from copyright um, to share tunes and compositions and arrangements in an informal way. Whereas in the field of open source software, you have software programmers who actually formally license their creations. They're aware that they own the copyrights and sometimes the patents to what they're doing, but they're just choosing to license it on an open basis, which means in a general sense that any programmer can come along and improve the software and pass it down the line to other programmers. Now, Luke McDonough is extending his research into the world of theatre, interviewing writers, directors and actors to see who, in their view, should own a work of drama. The creativity that goes on in theatre is impossible without collaboration. And copyright tends to reward the, the writer, the playwright, with the authorship of the dramatic work, which is the play. And I wanted to investigate whether that is the correct way of, of uh, giving authorship in, in, the, in the context of, of drama. So, with the law ready to protect an author's rights, how do you stop a joint creative career ending in acrimony years or even decades later? The way to avoid these kind of legal difficulties is to put your relationship to your other creative partners in writing. And that was something that the High Court emphasised very strongly in Fisher and Brooker, that any young bands out there should make sure that they put their relationship to each other in writing. So it is, it is a slightly boring thing to say, but it can prevent these kinds of difficulties cropping up decades later, as you have in the case of Fisher and Brooker. What exactly is a maverick, and how would you know if you were one? Research from LSE has looked into not just how we define this elusive term, but also how companies can spot the mavericks in their workforce and get the best from them. Hi, how can I help you? Do you pick up your mobile phone with your left or right hand? If it's your left, research shows that you are more likely to be a maverick who enjoys thinking creatively, breaking rules and taking risks. You may also be viewed by your work colleagues as a poor team player who is tricky to deal with and hell-bent on promoting your ideas ahead of theirs. Dr Ellie Gardner, an organisational psychologist in LSE's Department of Management, has analysed what it is that makes a maverick, so that employers can spot them, channel their unconventional behaviour 
and unleash their talents for innovative thinking. Someone who's a maverick is someone who's creative, who's independently minded and basically someone who has a knack for pulling things off when no one else could. So they have something about them or there's something about their work style that makes them able to achieve things that seem impossible. I think Richard Branson is a very good example of uh, someone who's maverick. He uh, is charismatic, he's persuasive, he has influence and he takes risks. I mean, if you think about how he started, he first started selling um, records through mail order and now he's thinking about taking tourists into space. Uh, He's certainly doing things that no one else would think to do uh, and he's managing to pull it off. He's very successful. Steve Jobs is someone we look up to. Richard Branson is someone we look up to. Oprah Winfrey is someone we look up to. But we really don't know how they do it. Um, We read all their biographies and we try and get lessons that, uh, that they've put into those books and that kind of stuff. Uh, But this is the first study that actually quantitatively is trying to look at what personality factors predict this behaviour. Is it biological? Is it um, influenced by the environment? And our research is suggesting that it is actually influenced by both. So in order to be competitive, um, you know, businesses need to make sure they actually are attracting and hiring the right people for the job. And sometimes this means sticking to a very prescriptive uh, profile of, you know, they want someone who's outgoing but they want someone who's very conscientious they want someone who follows the rules now this might work for some organizations but the organizations that are wanting a large change in a quick in a you know short amount of time they need to actually hire people that are uh, very different from this mold people who think differently who are willing to take the risks um, and who are willing to actually you know I guess think about something new and offer something new to the organization so when employees are asking employees to do more with less I think it's looking to these kinds of mavericks whether they be new hires or people internal to the organization who can actually make the most difference. Dr Gardner and Professor Chris Jackson of the University of New South Wales surveyed 450 workers from a range of different industries including retail, education and IT. Uh, They completed a series of uh, surveys, so personality scales. Um, Also, we had a scale developed especially for this study that looked at different types of maverick behaviour and how um, personality mapped onto that. We also asked them to complete measures of lateral preference. It's a biological measure that actually looks at a hemispheric preference. So the idea is that left brain, the left brain, right brain thing that we've talked a lot about in business. So are you more analytical or are you more creative? And the right hemisphere is more responsible for the creative side and the left hemisphere more responsible for the analytical side. So we were wanting to see whether or not um, mavericks were actually you know, hardwired in a different kind of way. Questions like um, if you were listening uh, to a conversation on the other side of the room, uh, which ear would you put to the door to hear? Um, if you were going to pick up the phone, a cordless phone, um, which ear would you put it to? Um, if you were listening to wireless radio, which one would you um, you know, move towards the radio? So those kinds of things. Uh, we also looked at risk-taking propensity, and to do this, uh, people who uh, took part in the study actually did a experimental task where they were punished for some behaviours and um, rewarded for some behaviours, and then we looked at their risk-taking propensity on that measure. So that was sort of a manipulated um, a manipulated task. So yeah, we found um, a number of personality constructs to um, predict maverick behaviour. Um, one is agreeableness. So we actually found low agreeableness to predict maverick behaviour. So um, this isn't to say that mavericks are disagreeable, but Steve Jobs is a good example of someone who is known to be quite abrasive. Um, but what we're thinking more along the lines of is that 
being low in agreeables is actually a better indicator of competitiveness. So someone who's a maverick and who is low in agreeableness, it's not necessarily that they're completely disagreeable, but it's more likely that they're comfortable with um, disagreeing with people when they need to. And so if you think of the scale from altruism to competitiveness, really you want someone anyway who is more competitive. And it makes sort of more sense that that does actually map onto what we've found. Um, other things we found to predict maverickism is extroversion. So extroversion is about being sociable, um, being talkative and being socially confident. Uh, and individuals who are high in extroversion are also very persuasive. Now, these kinds of traits are very useful for someone who's high in maverick, um, maverickism or who exhibits maverick behaviour uh, because they need to be able to persuade people and influence people to get them on side, uh, even if it is just so that they can actually achieve the goals that they want to achieve. Uh, another trait that was found to correlate uh, with uh, maverick behaviour is openness. So openness to experience is about creativity, innovation, uh, but also about being uh, independently minded uh, and willing to sort of think outside the box. So again, this maps on with what we already know about mavericks as being uh, innovative to the core, um, disruptive uh, and independently minded. We've actually come up with a scale that organisations can use, at least for the developmental purposes at this stage, to see, you know, do they have mavericks in their workplace? If they do, uh, what can they do to sort of support that? Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. Those are the opening words of Apple's 1997 Think Different commercial. Eight years later, in a speech at Stanford University, Steve Jobs urged graduates to follow his example by refusing to let convention dictate their lives. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Policing the streets of any large city involves a delicate balance between protecting the innocent and investigating the potentially guilty. The police are pressured on one side by the public and political demands for safer streets, and on the other side by the need to police in a way that does not alienate the communities that they serve. We meet the LSE researcher who spent a year with the police and witnessed how the balance can tip in the wrong direction. Police policy of stop and search has been under the spotlight since the UK riots last August. Young people have described how being stopped on the street leaves them feeling humiliated and alienated. Despite the high rate of stop and search, it has a low rate of success, just 7% in one inner London borough. This means that 93 people out of 100 that are stopped are not carrying knives or drugs and have done nothing wrong. Daniel Baer is a researcher who spent a year in the field with the police, riding around in police cars and going to community meetings, observing the implementation of police drugs policy on the streets. However, his research explains how the high rate of stop and search is less about drugs policy and more a byproduct of how police effectiveness is measured. 
Officers are often judged on how many sanction detections they have. A sanction detection is when a crime is detected, so it's called in, uh, a crime has been solved, we've identified the perpetrator, and the perpetrator has been brought to justice. For a case like shoplifting, it might take 16 man hours to get to a sanction detection point. Baer describes how in the case of a more serious crime, such as rape, an officer might never receive credit in the form of a sanction detection because the case will be passed up to a more senior officer. In contrast, filing a sanction detection for cannabis only takes between 30 minutes and an hour's worth of paperwork. And we need to think about this from an officer's perspective. If you're being told that you're being measured on the number of successful stop and searches you conduct, and it's seen as your way of being proactive, and the end of your review is coming up, and you need to show that you know, you're a good police officer and want to continue to advance in your career, finding cannabis is relatively easy. You can go by a park and smell it from quite a big distance away. You go up, you spend 30 minutes, you fill out the warning form, you have a sanction detection under your belt. That counts quite a bit. Bear explains that officers don't particularly want to focus on cannabis, but because that's what they are being measured on, that's what happens. On several occasions, I worked with officers who immediately, uh, upon starting their shift, went out uh, to try and find cannabis. And I was quite surprised and, and said, you know, I mean, straight off the bat, it's the beginning of a night shift, why are we going to this park to look for cannabis? And the officer said quite bluntly, well, I need to get a sanction detection. Um, this is a quick way to do it. And afterwards, if we get it now, I can spend the rest of the shift doing real policing, doing the things that help the community, doing the things that I feel good about doing and engaging in. And so if I get this out of the way now, we can move on. So the police are trying to be responsive to the community's needs, while at the same time being pressed for a harder, more criminalised response to the issues that make people fear crime. And this has consequences. Even if a stop is conducted well, and appropriately and professionally, which many times it is, that, that still leaves a sour taste in your mouth. To have someone digging through your pockets, to have someone pulling out the cards in your wallet, to have them asking you to take off your shoes so they can see if you're hiding drugs there. These things can have a really negative impact on people, especially young people coming to understand their role and place in society. These kind of experiences help create an undercurrent of anger and distrust in some communities, particularly among the young black men who are most likely to be stopped, often time and time again. The recent riots were a serious wake-up call on police and community relations. For Bear, they raise basic questions about the kind of policing that we want to see. Starting under uh, Prime Minister Major and moving through with new Labour, something called new public managerialism took hold. And that was the idea that you could bring measures of efficacy and efficiency into public service bodies. And the way that's affected police is that they're measured quite stringently on stop and search, arrests, sanction detections. And these aren't necessarily numbers that really portray the depth of policing. But the need to respond to that can shape the organization's response and the individual's response. Organizationally, I think we need to ask ourselves what the mission of police is, 
and how we want policing to take place in our communities. If we want the Daily Mail to dictate policing policy, that's fine. You can have that. But if we want community priorities um, and problem-solving approaches based on the issues affecting communities at a local level, then that's also fine. And we need to reconfigure ourselves to fully adopt more one side or the other. You don't have to be an economist to understand what a complicated subject it is. Just look at what's happening in the world around us. That's the real world, though. Perhaps economics gets a little simpler in the virtual world. That dramatic introduction was courtesy of World of Warcraft, the incredibly successful online fantasy game which can be so addictive it has reportedly ruined marriages. But along with other online games, social media and digital content, it is part of a growing area of academic study dubbed virtual economics. Over the past 15 years or so, the supposedly artificial economy of games and online activity has been crossing over into the so-called real economy. Virtual goods in, for example, computer games are now being exchanged for real money. Dr. Vili Ledon Verta, a reader in the LSE Asia Research Centre and leading expert on virtual economics, tells us how it was some of the early real money exchanges which first attracted his interest. Online game players were actually putting some uh, virtual possessions uh, that they had in the games on auction on eBay. A virtual castle in an, in an online fantasy game could be uh, auctioned on eBay and uh, often those castles would be sold for hundreds of, of pounds. So this type of uh, player-to-player real money trading of uh, online game items got increasingly popular during the, uh, the early years of, of this millennium. It even gave birth to a class of professional gamers who would supply the market with virtual gold coins and castles that they had generated inside the game. A couple of years ago I did a study about this for the World Bank. World Bank's InfoDev program got very interested in the fact that it seemed that a lot of people in developing countries like China, a lot of poor and quite undereducated people were actually earning a, a real income from playing these games and selling the, the, the goods to wealthier players in the West. The total volume of this player-to-player virtual goods trade was approximately 3 billion US dollars. Many programmers have now realized the potential money to be made from offering goods and upgrades within their games, and so the gold farming industry has somewhat faded away. But a fundamental question remains. Why do people pay real money for effectively pretend castles and tractors? I don't think that there's anything uh, mentally wrong <laughs> with, with someone who would want to spend real money on a virtual item. Because it turns out that the reasons why people spend money on virtual goods are exactly the same, same reasons as why they spend money on, on physical consumer goods. So it has to do with, with uh, social distinctions, social status... Uh, and social uh, relations if you're a sociologist 
Um, if you're a, a psychologist, you'll be interested in looking at the sort of emotional and, and uh, aesthetic pleasures of, of, of consumption. And as people increasingly spend time in, in digital environments, it's quite natural, I think, that consumption should also uh, partly move online. There seems to be a blurred line between what can be called the virtual economy and the real economy. But it's not just within online games where people are willing to spend real money. Dr. Ladon Vertra has also looked at how businesses are starting to put a price on so-called social media votes, such as Twitter followers, or likes on Facebook, or YouTube subscribers. In a way, they, they, are, um, they are good because they are valuable to advertisers who uh, want to promote their brands. At the same time, it's a scarce resource because um, you cannot, well, obviously choose how many likes you, you, you wish to have. But it's an artificially scarce resource in the sense that Facebook could, of course, simply give every brand 10 billion likes. But then, obviously, the value of those likes would also disappear because their whole value isn't the fact that they're scarce and that way they relay some kind of information um, regarding the goods. But now what has happened is that because of this value and because of this scarcity, a market has emerged. So there are companies that tell consumers that, look, we will pay you money if you like these specific brands that we have here. Dodgy practices and wranglings over social media aside, Dr. Ladon Verter believes the virtual economy and virtual consumption in particular, has the potential to have a broad and significantly positive impact in the future. Well, one issue that I'm particularly interested in and that I would uh, love to somehow explore further is the idea that um, virtual consumption could in fact help in the decoupling of economic activity and uh, environmental impact. Because with virtual goods, when you buy a virtual item instead of a, a physical item, um, obviously you're still having some kind of an ecological footprint because um, these devices consume electricity and, and so on. But uh, you can throw away that item and it doesn't cause any kind of uh, burden on the, on the environment. The idea that I'm, I'm uh, sort of pursuing here is that if we could digitalize or virtualize consumer culture, then that could possibly uh, have a very interesting impact on the, the environmental footprint of the consumer society. The music you've been hearing throughout this podcast is from the Critique of Pure Rhythm, a rock band made up of academics from the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method at LSE. Our thanks to them. That's it for this edition of Causes and Things, produced by the Press Office here at LSE. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for future editions. If you'd like to get in touch, please do email us at pressoffice at lse.ac.uk or find us on Twitter at LSE News. It was all if be then cute, but all I saw was if it's me then it's you. Well, there ain't no possible world in which we won't. There ain't no possible world in which we don't.